welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the brain, evolution, and how dietary fats played a fundamental role in its development with ancestral nutrition expert, Nora Gedgoudis. In this episode, Nora outlines the key fats our brains are made up of, the food sources our ancestors selected to support brain growth, as well as what sparked the unprecedented growth in our brain size some 200,000 years ago. She also shares some shocking news about our brains today and how over the past 10,000 years, Research from Cornell University shows that they've actually been shrinking and that unfortunately size does matter when it comes to optimal brain health. Nora's going to outline some strategies to support a healthy brain as well as talk ketosis from an evolutionary perspective, quotes from leading researchers on the impacts of ketones in the brain, as well as some real actionable tips that you can use to support healthy brain function. As always, check out my layups and performance tips at drbubs.com forward slash podcast and enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Nora Gedgaudis. Nora is a board-certified nutritional consultant and clinical neurofeedback specialist with over 20 years of successful clinical experience. A recognized authority on ketogenic, ancestrally-based nutrition, she's a popular speaker and educator and the author of the best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, as well as Rethinking Fatigue. Her newest book, Primal Fat Burner, Live longer, slow aging, superpower your brain, and save your life with a high-fat, low-carb paleo diet has been lauded by best-selling author and journalist Nina Teicholz as a unique and profound contribution to the field. Her new weekly educational program, Primal Restoration, is a unique and invaluable source of information benefiting those interested in furthering their knowledge in nutrition and optimizing their health. Nora, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, Mark, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, listen, I had the pleasure of uh, attending your talk at the Ancestral Health Symposium out in Seattle earlier this year at the University of Washington. Um, fantastic talk all about the central role of dietary fat in forging the human brain. So, you know, I'm really interested in this topic and really looking forward to diving into this topic with you. So can we start with just talking about what the brain is made up of? <laughs> yeah, so our brain is basically constructed from the very fats that we supply it with with what it is that we choose to eat right and and the two fatty acids that are most uniquely responsible for our unique human cognition are arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid there are these 20 and 22 carbon fats that are found within our diet uh, pretty exclusively within animal source foods and so um, you know, fat is, you know, our human brain is, you know, is at least triple the size of what our most closely related primate ancestor, you know, the chimpanzee, has going for it. And the chimp's brain really hasn't changed in all all of that time. And, you know, the reason, of course, being that neither has their diet. Um, ours has and we became uh, extremely uh, dependent on, well, we developed a taste for fat, let's put it that way, uh, early on. 
as an extremely efficient and long-lasting source of energy that could supply us with ongoing energy in the absence of regular meals and all that kind of a thing. And our taste for that and the, the size of the animals that we had to hunt throughout the majority of our evolutionary history um, supplied us with just almost limitless amounts of these fats that serve to uh, radically increase the size of our brain. And um, there's, there's something that was advanced uh, a number of years ago, a hypothesis known as the expensive tissue hypothesis. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but yep. it, it's... But, um, share, yeah, share with listeners, please. Right. So the expensive, the expensive tissue hypothesis is basically based on the idea that our human brain is extremely expensive in terms of its ongoing energy requirements. You know, it, it makes up, what, 2 to 5% of our body weight. I like the joke, maybe a little less if you're a politician or something. <laughs> and that, but, it's, but it actually draws 25 or more percent of our total caloric energy demand. That makes it incredibly expensive. And... Um, so, so this metabolic requirement over the course of our evolution has, has been progressively met by offsetting, um, according to the expensive tissue hypothesis, met by offsetting the size of our guts, you know, as compared to our primate ancestors. You know, human colon makes up uh, roughly 20% of our total GI tract, and uh, we have an extremely limited capacity to... Um, uh, to to engage in any kind of fermentative-based digestive uh, process, uh, unlike herbivores, which have a fermentative-based digestive tract, including chimps. You know, their their guts make up about fifty-two percent of their total digestive tract, which you know makes them look like they have big beer guts all of the time. Absolutely. So they're that that fermentative-based digestive system is able to take all of the plant foods they nosh on all day. And ferment that into a whole complex of nutrients and fats and things that they can then uh, th that can then supply them with what they need, um, you know, for maintenance and growth and everything else. And and uh, the uh, excuse me the that degree of fermentation is something that. You know, and fermentative nutritional uh, synthesis and all that kind of a thing is not something that we're particularly capable of. Uh, we have a very limited means of doing that. So we have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system. For us, you know, we are designed to get those nutrients directly from animals that we consume that have already synthesized all these nutrients for us. But it's interesting that even herbivores... Uh, actually are designed, all, all large mammals are basically designed to run on fat as a primary source of fuel. Herbivores get 70 to 80 percent of their total calories, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking cows now, yep. from actually short-chain saturated fat from the bacterial fermentation of all that fiber they spend all day long consuming. Think about how a uh, you know how an animal actually designed to eat a carbohydrate diet lives its day you know goes through its day its face is in the grass it's in the bushes it's in you know the leaves and trees and whatever else and noshing on fiber constantly to in order to meet the caloric and energy demands of that animal and it's the bacteria that actually do most of the work 
um, outside of the eating in order to accomplish that. But the bacteria basically take that plant fiber and they ferment it into these short-chain saturated fatty acids. Uh, butyric acid is the primary one. There's acetic acid and propionic acid um, that um, are actually the primary source of calories in that animal. Uh, so even an animal that's designed to eat a carbohydrate diet is not actually designed to run on carbohydrates. Now, again, because we are uh, designed to eat animals uh, and digest them with a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system, we end up getting a much greater variety of fats in our diet than herbivores typically get. And, um, you know, they'll synthesize other fats in, in their tissues and then we can consume that. But we're designed to eat the, the the largest amount and the greatest variety of fats of, of virtually any animal um, on the planet. And that basically gave us the substrate we needed for our unusually large and sophisticated brains. So, you know, to kind of wrap up the expensive tissue hypothesis, um, you know, we have, as humans, this greatly shortened large intestine and a significantly lengthened small intestine that designs us to get our primary nutritional and neurological needs met by directly consuming a much more nutrient-dense diet that's rich in a variety of fats. And, and so, um, so the idea is that we traded the size of our gut for the size of our brain. And as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's a good trade-off. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a pretty good trade-off. And, of course, you know, is that one then of the driving factors behind that rapid increase? You know, our early ancestors had, as you mentioned in your talk, about a 900 cubic centimeter brain size, and that, you know, nearly doubled um, as we became Homo sapiens. Is that one of the aspects that really drove that change? Yes, it's, it's, it's the primary aspect that drove that change. Um, you know, without those fats, we would not have had the you know, the structural substrate with which to do that. And we forget that for the vast majority of our evolutionary history, the world was a pretty different place. You know, we shared the planet for roughly 2.6 million years during the Pleistocene, all the way up until, you know, about, you know, 10, 15,000 years ago, with an enormous uh, number of massive herbivores of megafauna. Things like woolly mammoths and giant sloths and aurochs and, you know, and, and Irish elk and on and on and on that he had an enormous amount of body fat percentage. I mean, at woolly mammoths alone, uh, they've estimated were probably roughly 50% body fat, extrapolating from the body fat of elephants. Wow. And we would have gobbled all that up, you know. Um, and so it was fairly easy for us to procure that, that kind of energy. And then once the Ice Age came to its extremely abrupt and violent end, um, we uh, literally 120 species of megafauna literally vanished from the face of the earth almost in the blink of an eye. And what we were left to hunt were much smaller, leaner, and much more fleet of foot prey. But fat was never really any less precious to us then than it was before. It was just that it was a little, you know, harder for us to get the amounts that we needed. Uh, and then once we adopted agriculture, uh, the <laughs> sort of the, the die, it seems, was cast. And, 
And uh, over the last 10,000 years or so, we've lost just over 10% of our total brain volume, particularly as we've gone to a more carbohydrate-dominated diet, something that is, is sort of unique in, its, you know, in the trend of our evolutionary history. And that's a really interesting point because that's something that, um, you know, I guess size does matter when it comes to brain function and something that, you know, yes. in, in your talk, you mentioned even some interesting findings around the consumption of fish. So can you can you share, touch on that a little bit? Well, you know, people, okay, so, you know, even when it comes to, you know, a lot of people think of fish as being the ultimate brain food and, um, and being our main source of, you know, the omega-3s, the elongated omega-3s, EPA and DHA, uh, which are the ones that our body essentially makes the most use of. Anybody trying to chug flax oil to get their omega-3 requirements met has got another thing coming, you know, if they think that that is meeting their omega-3 needs. It can't. It literally cannot. Um, but at any rate, if, yeah, if DHA is not in your diet, it's not in your brain. But you can get as much, you know, EPA and DHA in extremely high-quality grass-fed meat as you can in, say, wild-caught salmon, right? And this is predominantly where our ancestors got their omega-3s, not from fish. Um, fish was was a more peripheral food. They can the the stable isotopic evidence shows very clearly that we much preferred eating the meat and fat of extremely large herbivores. And even in the more recent, you know, prehistoric Mediterranean region, you know, where, you know, you think of the Mediterranean as being kind of the seat of, of, Absolutely. of, of wonderful seafood, and, you know, and it is. But um, there was a researcher by the name of Marcello Menino, who was a research scientist in archaeology at the Department of Human Evolution at the Max Planck Institute. And and he says, and I happen to have the quote here, that the source of the dietary protein consumed in the late prehistoric Mediterranean region mainly originated from the meat of medium to large terrestrial herbivores, um, and so not, and not fish. And so he's referring, of course, to the late Pleistocene, you know, following these post-glacial changes. But we were still going after these larger herbivores for our primary source of nourishment and not fish. And, um, you know, I mean, think about it. How many cave paintings of fish have you seen? <laughs> yeah. when, when you look at, at the cave paintings of our, um, you know, of our prehistoric ancestors, what you see are these uber fat, almost Macy's Day parade you know, disproportionately fat um, uh, kind of body depictions of large herbivorous animals, of woolly mammoths and oryx and bison and, and uh, you know, woolly rhinos and, and all kinds of things like that, even horses. Uh, and I think that it has something to do with the fact that, you know, that cave paintings have been kind of more recently understood by by the you know those researchers that study them as being more or less shamanic in nature in other words depicting those things that are sacred or that pre prehistoric people might have sought as most desirable you know maybe and i sometimes joke and call it something like a, a prehistoric vision board right so to speak for sure 
and you know these were amazing artists i mean I, you know the cave art is is astonishing so it's not like they they didn't know what they were doing and when they attempted to depict you know the human form you know like like people hunting or whatever else they tended to depict us in fairly proportional um, in, with fairly proportional characteristics, and also like predatory animals, like cave lions and things like that, tended to look fairly proportional and muscular, and and not you know Macy's Day Parade bloated. Absolutely. But you know, it's they chose to portray the ones that they might have sought to hunt for food as being disproportionately fat, and I, I think that's incredibly interesting. And of course, the rational implication of that is that this was the most desirable characteristic in their food animals that they hoped to successfully hunt. And in looking through hundreds and hundreds of cave painting and rock art from locations all over the world, it's a theme that seems to come up again and again, regardless of where those paintings appear. So, you know, fish is fine and good, but it's not what made us who we are. Absolutely. And it's amazing how, you know, that Cornell University study that's really highlighting that size does matter. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, fish is a nice thing to have in the diet. But this notion that we so often hear around avoiding red meat and red meat being detrimental for our health, uh, this seems to go, you know, completely against uh, those those common maxims. Well, let's put it this way, that the health of the meat and the fat that you consume is pretty well, you can correlate with the health of the animal that that meat and fat came from. And so when I talk about what constitutes the optimal human diet, one, uh, one aspect to that equation that I, uh, that I take a hard line on not compromising is that that meat and fat needs to come from animals that have been exclusively pasture-fed and finished, right? Living out in fresh air and sunshine and, and, and allowed to eat what is natural for them to eat. And... Uh, that's that's the key to this equation. Uh, I'm actually much more concerned about the health compromises that may be associated with with um, you know kind of modern day seafood, um, especially in the northern hemisphere right now. There's so much contamination and so little accountability as to what we might be getting. And you know we have the um, I mean I haven't actually consumed seafood from the from the northern hemisphere since about 2011 um and uh, well that's not entirely true there there is one source that i cite in my book that is actually a canadian source that was line caught by indigenous families up in northern canada you know fish that's that's been line caught there's a company called walleyedirect.com that that has really high quality, you know, it's freshwater fish, but uh, but some of the best walleye you ever tasted. And it also helps to support indigenous families. And so, and we're talking about landlocked, you know, fish swimming in pretty pristine water. I mean, you've got it about as good as it gets up in Canada. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the only source of salmon I consume anymore actually comes from, it, it, believe it or not, it's farm-raised, but it's the only farm-raised salmon I've ever come across that appears to be doing things in the best possible way um, in under the best possible conditions and it's and it's called oraking o-r-a-k-i-n-g and you can go to their website it's it's really amazingly good salmon and extremely high in these elongated forms of omega-3 and it comes from water that's about as clean as you can get so 
Um, and I'm, I've grown extremely fussy about that. I I've, have a hard time trusting what comes out of the Pacific Ocean, including the North Pacific, anymore. Uh, certainly don't consume anything that ever that that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico, which is so contaminated now that you know shrimp are being born with no eyes and all kinds of fish are swimming around with black lesions and dolphins are washing up dead on the beaches and all kinds of things. It's it's horrific. Yeah, it's a sad day, yeah. It is. Um, and this is not something that ends up, you know, being on the evening news because the State Department has made the decision that they are not going to test um, anything that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico or the Pacific for contaminants like radiation or Corexit or anything else that, you know, as because of economic issues and whatever else, they're just simply not doing it. And so the media is really not particularly allowed to report on it to any meaningful degree and people just aren't really thinking about that but i think that they need to think about that a bit more absolutely and this sort of dovetails into diet quality and brain size um it does. and how you mentioned yeah. how the, you know these are very highly positively correlated can you share where you know humans fall on this line what do you mean and maybe you can clarify the question a little oh sorry in terms of when we look across um various uh, you know species when we look at humans in terms of brain size and, and diet oh, quality um, I that, that relationship yeah 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 so yeah you know during my age 17 talk i actually um supplied a graphic from uh from a paper that was published in this huge compendium of a very scholarly research that was related to dietary fat and human evolution in fact, the name of the uh, textbook was called Fat Detection. I've got it on my sh uh, shelf here. Um, and um, anyway, and in it, they they showed this graph that was a plot uh, plotted relative to brain size with a large variety of primates, including humans. And it was basically plotted against the dietary fat content, which they called, you know, the dietary quality, right? Um, and, you know, here, you know, the authors uh, state that, and I, and I have the quote here, among living primates, the relative proportion of energy allocated to brain metabolism is positively correlated with dietary quality. Contemporary humans fall at the positive end of this relationship, having both a high-quality diet and a large brain. And thus, high costs associated with a large human brain are supported in part by energy-rich diets. And then they went on later to say that the consumption of a high-quality diet, in other words, meat and especially fat, was likely a prerequisite for the evolution of a large, energetically expensive brain in hominids. And if you look at this graph, you can see that the human brain is a major outlier uh, amidst the plot of about 33 other uh, primates that were listed in this study. And um, there's just no other primate that comes close. And it's sort of interesting that, um, you know, the great apes all consume some meat. But of all, of all primates, we are far and away designed to consume the most. But uh, the only exception to meat consumption in the great apes is herbivorous gorillas. And they have a brain that's about a third the size that would be expected for a uh, you know, a primate of similar size. So, um, you know, you guys you can just sort of do the math on that. But, um, yes, we're by far designed to consume the most fat of any other primate species. And uh, we have a big brain to show for it. 
most of us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share a picture of that slide in the show notes because it's really compelling um, for people to see visually. And if we, if we keep on this topic of, of brain development, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, the use of fire as a catalyst for supporting brain development is commonly cited as one of the reasons for bigger brains throughout evolution. Um, can you comment on your thoughts and the role that that plays uh, in all this? Well, you know, so, you know, a lot of people, you know, like to claim that somehow fire, you know, was responsible for um, making us human, right? Uh, and, and and really, that that argument was largely drawn from the, uh, you know, the whole, well, it's called the cooking hypothesis, for starters. And the suggestion is that cooking was basically the thing that ultimate, ultimately, you know, made us human. And they were basically trying to address the idea that we weren't able to really digest and turn large amounts of fiber into energy. And therefore, cooking would have made that more possible. And it's certainly true that if we cook plant foods, which is necessary, by the way, for even eating a lot of plant foods, because in the wild, so many plant foods contain toxins and you know alkaloids and phytates and all kinds of things that need to be neutralized, some of which at least can be neutralized by cooking and makes those foods more available to us. But but also, when we cook plants, it helps to break down the cellulose, which then makes some of the nutrients trapped in that cellulose a little more available to us. But that, of course, then there's a trade-off because it's also breaking down. Uh, cooking also destroys certain heat labile nutrients and things like that. So, you know, when I recommend, um, you know, the fibrous vegetables and greens in a person's diet, I say, you know, eat them raw and cooked and cultured. If you're consuming them in cultured and fermented form, um, you're going to basically help to mimic what a cow's digestive tract does because the bacteria, you know, get to work on uh, that are used in the culturing process, get to work on the plant material and break it down and create a lot more nutrients in the finished fermented product um, that then would have been available in the raw plant itself. You know, it's like 300 times more vitamin C in, in cultured cabbage as opposed to just raw cabbage, for instance, and things like that. Um, but you're still not going to be able to supply all your nutrition that way. And um, so... You know, and the thing is, is that we can't really make dietary use of raw starch or physiological use of raw starch. We could eat raw tubers, and that would have supplied something called resistant starch. And the reason they call it resistant is that starch is not digestible by humans unless it has been acted upon by heat uh, in in a in a in a pronounced and prolonged manner, in other words, through cooking, which allows the um, allows the starch molecules in in tubers and things like that to kind of swell up and disrupt from the cells and then become available to us in you know at least as calories. Not a lot of nutrition in starch, but there's calories there. Yep. Um, I will point out though that there's nothing in starch to actually supply structure you know, to the human brain at all. You know, we certainly didn't develop big brains by eating lots of cooked potatoes and, and plant foods. It just could not have happened that way. Um, and, you know, cooking is, well, you know, one of the other 
one of the other issues is that there was a fairly recent uh, paper published on the subject of of the use of fire, uh, the development uh, that humans, uh, the development of our ability to make use of fire at will. And it's suggested by all of the evidence available, which the article extrapolated from, which just sort of went through all the available research papers, that our ability to make full use of fire as a cooking tool was probably a way more recent uh, thing, like anywhere from maybe 75 to 100,000 years ago. Well, by 200,000 years ago, we already had our big brains. Exactly. And, you know, we, we can't really, cooking did not really make us human. Um, you know, eating starch didn't make us human. Um, eating dietary fat did. Absolutely. And you shared a great quote uh, in your talk by renowned experts and I believe the lab chief at the National Institute of Health, Dr. Richard Veach, um, that reads, you know, I would argue ketosis is the normal state of man. How did ketosis impact our ability to survive during those times, you know, throughout evolution of limited food availability? um, Well, that's just it. You almost answered your own question. So, you know, in other words, food would not have been something that, you know, any anything living in the wild is going to be a constantly in search of food and and it and it wasn't always available to us you know it wasn't always easy to catch you know the things that we you know to hunt the things that we hunted and you know you couldn't always rely on food to be available and god forbid we should have been um you know living with a a a uh, you know sugar-based metabolism you know and, and relying on blood sugar for a primary source of fuel as you know as we're taught that we need to uh, we wouldn't be here you know having to snack throughout the day and eat every couple of hours or whatever and what happens to the majority of people that that have that sugar-based that glucose-based metabolism that that total reliance on blood sugar if these people go anybody with that type of metabolism goes for like six hours without eating a meal is, you know, likely to not be functioning at their best. You know, they're going to start to feel brain fog. Their energy is going to drop. Um, they might get really irritable. Uh, and it becomes kind of hard to function. And that would not have been a fabulous survival uh, situation for us. And yet, if you can instead rely on something like fat as a primary source of fuel, there there are two ways in which we do that. One, through the uh, beta-oxidation of free fatty acids, but also through the production and utilization of something called ketones, which are the water-soluble energy units of fat that are made by our liver um, from those free fatty acids. And the human brain can run on almost nothing but ketones, and it's and it's and it's also interesting to point out that we were literally born. We're all re- literally born relying on fat as our primary source of fuel. It's how we come into the world. And the Journal of Neuroscience Research had a had a paper, and um, and uh, I pulled a quote from that for for my talk and for other things that I've written that states, once the onset of suckling takes place, ketone bodies become the major fuel for brain development, not glucose, right? So um, we're born natural fat burners, and babies and children don't start craving sugar until we start feeding it to them. The carbohydrate diet is something that 
we're told that we need to eat as our foundational diet. But where is the where are those recommendations actually coming from? Well, here in the United States, it comes from the United States Department of Agriculture. You know, no no conflict of interest there, mm-hmm. right? For sure. Where we're just to be basing our diet on you know mm-hmm. what what's called complex carbohydrates, right? You know, grains and legumes and you know all that sort of a thing. And and they give lip service to vegetables, and they 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 say veg- fruits and vegetables as if the two belong together in the same breath, which they don't. Um, and there's really no basis for this. There's there's not a single human people group in the history of humankind that ever consumed a diet, suge- you know, that that the United States Department of Agriculture suggests as optimal, and, and most government agencies suggest as optimal. Um, and uh, and yet we're told that we have to rely on carbohydrates as a primary source of fuel because we live on blood sugar. That's only conditionally true. We're only dependent on blood sugar if, for some reason, <laughs> which is you know 99.9% really of our modern-day society, we have cultivated a sugar-burning metabolism um, due to what it is that we have chosen to eat. And if we're eating a carbohydrate diet, our body's going to adapt itself to an expectancy, you know, to a dependence on sugar as a primary source of fuel. But nature was not stupid enough to force us to be dependent on just one kind of fuel for our survival. Um, Fat is another form of fuel that actually we store far more efficiently. Um, You know, your body's normally obsessed with maintaining the lowest level of blood sugar at any given time possible because sugar is inherently inflammatory. It's glycating to our tissues. In other words, it damages and ages our tissues. And, you know, glycation is a process by which sugars will... Uh, will combine with proteins and fats in the diet and cause them to become sticky and misshapen and start to malfunction. And um, and that glycation process is fundamentally how we age and, and, and how things just sort of start breaking down with time, including our brains uh, and other organs and our skin and, you know, whatever else. And so, um, but, uh, and we can only store uh, you know, so in any amount of glucose, we're only, we only have uh, about a teaspoon of glucose. That's the maximum that your body typically allows flowing around in your bloodstream at any given time. You know, we're talking four or five grams, m- you know, max of sugar that is supposed to be there uh, at any given time. And whatever exceeds that, and we're talking about the amount that would be the equivalent of like a sugar cube. Um, anything that exceeds that amount automatically is going to invoke an insulin response. It becomes an emergency. Your body's looking to get that sugar out of the bloodstream. And at first it tries to inject it into your cells for whatever immediate energy you might need to outrun, you know, a saber-toothed tiger or something. Sure. And then it's whatever's left over and it it puts it into storage both in your liver and in your muscles as something called glycogen, which is like your body's version of starch. It just the glucose kind of holds hands and links together and and forms these complexes that we can then draw upon at a later time in case of an emergency. And then whatever we can't store there, and we really can't very easily store more than about 2,000 calories worth of that, um, doesn't take long to fill that up, ends up getting converted to triglycerides in our liver, and then, um, in other words, blood fats. And then it 
goes to wherever in your body and gets stored typically in places where you'd rather not have it. Uh, but fat, on the other hand, is something that um, our body stores uh, pretty efficiently. And even the thinnest person listening to this has anywhere from maybe 100 to 150,000 calories worth of fat floating around in their body at any given time that they could be drawing upon uh, as energy to run their brains, to run their organs, even in the absence of regular meals. It's even burning, it's reliable, it's steady, and it's non-damaging. It doesn't damage your um, cells and tissues and things like that the way sugar does. We always need a small amount of glucose, and your body will do whatever it takes to maintain uh, the minimum necessary level of glucose. But um, you don't ever have to eat any carbohydrate at all for that to occur. Your body can make all the glucose it needs very easily from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. And um, Absolutely. And Great insights there, Nora. And of course, it makes so much more energy. Excuse me. It makes so much more sense that, you know, nature would want us to rely on that instead. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, the carbohydrates predominantly in the form of, of excess sugars and processed carbohydrates, which make up, you know, the majority of people's diets. And of course, as you know, are so, you know, hyper palatable and just, um, you know, everywhere in the modern society that it just creates an environment for people to overconsume, and, you know, which, which really impairs that idea of metabolic flexibility, which you touched on there, being able to just flip into fat burning mode when there's a lack of food. And of course, I always you know, laugh, even elite Ironman triathletes can't go more than three or four hours because their bodies, although very fit, are just so fine-tuned in terms of being sugar burners that right. know, that idea of getting hangry after three or four hours is definitely a, a very real scenario for them. Now, if we continue to talk solutions here for folks listening in, you know, where can people start with this in terms of, you know, uh, nutritional changes, whether it's, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, what's, what's a good place for people to start? Well, um, you know, I define the approach that I take to all of this. I, I, I actually started to distance myself a little bit from the whole from paleo and ketogenic genres that have become highly commercialized now. And and what I describe about what it is that I'm talking about, what I'm advocating, is what amounts to a fat-based ketogenic diet based on you know very low carbohydrate intake. Um, that that is based upon foods of uncompromising quality. In other words, organic, um, totally pasture fed and finished um, and naturally foraged, you know, whatever, or wild caught that are in direct alignment with our human evolutionary and genetic heritage. But something else that I do in, in my own take on this is, you know, in my mind, just because our ancestors did something is not necessarily the best reason for us to do exactly the same thing. Because how, you know, we don't know whether or not what they were eating at any given time, which, you know, what they were eating stuff to survive, not necessarily to optimize their health. You know, we don't know what was optimal and what wasn't from that equation. So what I've drawn from is human longevity research to figure this out. And how I've modified these these foundational sort of Paleolithic principles, which, you know, looking at what our ancestors did for the vast majority of our evolutionary history, to me, is an essential. It's the only rational starting place. But sure. then, I, you know, the way I modify that is by um, moderating the protein intake. In other words, this isn't a high-protein diet. This isn't lots and lots and lots and lots of meat. This is meeting our protein requirements, but not exceeding them. 
And there are very good reasons for that that I that I talk about in my books at considerable length, and I urge you to, to look that up. But we're talking about very low carbohydrate, moderate protein, and then eating as much fat uh, from uncompromising quality sources and a variety of them. You know, of animal source foods and, you know, you can do olive oil and macadamia nut oil and avocado oil and things like that too. Coconut oil are fine, but animal source fats are, are, are really, really important because they contain a whole plethora of, of structural fats and, and functional nutrients that are really designed to help run our human brains and bodies. And, um, and then uh, I also try to take into account the world that we live in today. So I actually, you know, recommend eating a, a very large variety of fibrous, you know, above ground sort of vegetables and greens um, to, number one, help supply us with some, you know, extra phytonutrients and antioxidants. You know, I think we have a, a uniquely challenging world today that um, is far more compromise than anything our prehistoric ancestors had to put up with. So these extra beneficial phytonutrients and antioxidants help supply us with a little extra insurance against the, a lot of the toxins and pollutants that, that we're subjected to. It also provides bulk, you know, which can make for a more satisfying meal. And it also provides some nice extra fodder for what I like to call our internal wildlife, right? Our microbiome. And um, that's constantly embattled by so many things that we get exposed to. So, um, so we're talking, you know, about just if, if if somebody were to look down at my dinner plate, they might at first glance think that they were looking at the dinner plate of a vegetarian, and then they'd say, "Oh no, look, I see some little bits of meat in there," and oh, look, it's all glistening. <laughs> you <know? laughs> there you go. Because you know, I again, I and and. And our ancestors also did something that we don't do near enough today. They ate nose to tail, right? Um, and we're talking about, you know, incorporating things like organ meats and things like roasted bone marrow and, and uh, things like that into our diets that, um, you know, this is not just about eating, you know, filet mignon for dinner and, uh, and then a chicken breast you know, or something like that for lunch the next day. Uh, what we think of as meat is, is the kind of, you know, muscle meat, basically. Yep. You know, it's fine. It's, it's a decent enough food, but our prehistoric ancestors uh, were more likely to feed that to their dogs than, um, than rely on that as their primary, uh, you know, what, what they were really going after. Organ meats were always the most sought after and more, most important of, of, you know, the meat that came out of animals. But um, dietary fat was far and away the most coveted commodity. And I don't know, are your listeners familiar at all with the work of Weston Price? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. But yeah. uh, I'm happy to you know, share some more insights for sure. Yeah, so, you know, so... The, you know, he, he looked at these incredibly varied diets. Um, he covered like 100,000 miles over 10 years of his life in the 20s and 30s while, while there were still all these primitive uh, cultures and traditional societies um, off the grid, so to speak, that were consuming their traditional diets. And there was air travel that allowed people at that time to, to actually go and visit them, you know, in a way that was never possible before and will never be possible again. So it was this unique window. 
And what he found was that, you know, certainly wherever people were consuming their traditional diets, their health was, was you know, was far more robust than anything that uh, modern industrialized, uh, you know, cultures were enjoying. Um, but And a lot of people took away from Weston Price's work the idea of just sort of eat real food and call it good. But he actually was smart enough to ask a, a very important question after collecting all of that data from all over the world and all these different cultures, everything from the Aborigines in Australia to the Inuit in northern Alaska to native northern Canadian tribes to the jungles of Peru and, and, and Africa and, you know, the savannah of Africa and everything else. One question he asked himself was, what did they all have in common? And, and what did all of the healthiest cultures that I studied actually have in common? And he found two qualities. Number one, they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. In other words, he was not able to find um, actually any vegetarian or vegan cultures anywhere. But the more animal source foods a culture had available to them, and the greater the variety, usually the better they did. Um, but the second quality which really stood out to me, certainly, was that in every single instance where there was, you know, f optimal physical and mental health, uh, the most coveted, the most important, the most sacred food in every single culture uh, that was optimally healthy was that food that was highest in fat and fat-soluble nutrients. And in my mind, those two qualities constitute the foundational framework that is there for all of us as a template, as a starting place, as an essential starting place. And from there, we add nuance, right? From there, you know, there may be dietary inclusions from these various cultures that may have been compromising in some ways. And, you know, and I, think of a, I think of starch as basically a, a compromising nutrient more than a, than a beneficial one. Um, but if, that, if those foundations were strongly enough in place, that they were able to compensate for that, right? And and I think the way we add without subtracting from that equation is through the inclusion of extremely high-quality fibrous plant foods, fibrous vegetables and greens to the equation and cultured vegetables and things like that that can add appreciably to our, you know, phytonutrients and antioxidants and other nutrient intake uh, without doing much to compromise it. Um, and so... In my view, that's something that is probably more important to us today than ever used to be in our long evolutionary history, just by virtue of the compromised nature of our modern environment, um, our food supply, our soils, and our genome. So, um, For sure. I mean, great comments. And it is remarkable that he was able to, uh, Weston A. Price was able to to do all of that research, collect all that data, and make those observations so long ago. And thankfully he did, because now we're finally coming around to, uh, you know, making more of a, a shift in that direction, which is tremendous. And of course, Nora, you know, terrific insights um, here today from you, as well as your book's a terrific platform. I want to respect your time here. So last question for you, we're going to shift gears to the personal side of things. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> how do you start your day? Writing, exercise, are you a coffee person? Give listeners a little glimpse into your morning routine. Uh, actually, I spend about an hour meditating. Um, that's usually the first thing I do. Uh, and then I enjoy, you know, a cup of tea. I, I really don't care for coffee. 
anymore. I, I don't have, I'm not opposed to somebody having a really high quality organic cup of coffee in the morning as long as, you know, it's it's the only crutch holding them up. Then I think you need to look at that. But but I just have a, you know, a, a, a cup of tea or two. Black tea, uh, green tea, any preferences? Um, I don't do green tea anymore because I'm concerned about what's coming out of China and Japan. But, um, um, you know, from from other, uh, you know, countries, certain uh, either scented sorts of black teas or certain herbal teas and things like that, I really enjoy. Um, and then, um, you know, I may or may not uh, eat breakfast. Lately, I just really haven't been. I haven't had anything to eat yet today, for instance. And, and you know, I haven't even really thought about it, frankly. Um, it's actually not a bad idea to give yourself somewhere between 12 and 16 hours from the time you ate dinner to the time you first eat in the day. Uh, and I try to eat my biggest meal of the day uh, as early in the evening as possible, as early as even four o'clock if I can, but you know, five or six at the very latest. I want four or five hours, um, you know, reprieve and, and, and ability to digest my last meal of the day before. Uh, I go to before I go to sleep, and I often will try to eat a bigger meal of my bigger meal of the day, you know, earlier than that. Um, and um, you know, sometimes I'll have breakfast, but but other times not. And if I do, it's usually some small amount of um, like a, a really high quality uh, kind of a, a breakfast hash that could be made from maybe really high quality pastured you know, breakfast pork sausage or something like that, um, mixed with a whole bu- bunch of stir fried with a whole bunch of vegetables or, or something like that. Um, you're making me hungry, was, Nora. I know. <laughs> That's terrific. That made not long ago. That was, that was pretty darn good. That's but, terrific. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time today to come on the show. Where can people keep up with your work? Where can people pe- pick up your new book and stay connected with you on social media? Yeah. So I, uh, I do have a Facebook fan page you can go to just by looking up Nora Gidgaudis. Um, I My books, both Primal Body, Primal Mind, and Primal Fat Burner are available in bookstores everywhere and also, um, you know, certainly on Amazon and uh, as well as a variety of other things. Uh, I have an ebook called Rethinking Fatigue that is sort of brings the subject of adrenal fatigue into the 21st century. Nice. And to say it doesn't Good to hear. Fatigue and adrenal burnout are basically a myth based on 1950s science that was never proven to be true. So I'll just leave you with that teaser. My main website is primalbody-primalmind.com. And I also have a, a, a weekly educational program called Primal Restoration. And you can go to primalrestoration.com to learn more about that. And um, it's an extremely high-quality weekly kind of educational series where uh, people are sort of drip-fed a uh, just uh, information that you're not likely to get any other way that can help you make the most of you know what what you have already maybe learned in in my books and through my talks and things like that it it takes things to a whole new level and it's it's accredited through the nutritional therapy association as well as well it's in the process of being accredited by the the uh, national association of nutrition professionals so it offered. There are some CEUs available for those who qualify. 
Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include all those links uh, in the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Nora, thanks so much again for taking the time. Thanks for everyone else tuning in. If you guys have any questions or comments for myself or Nora, would love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. You can use the hashtag Dr. Bubs PP. If you guys enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us your rating of the show. Thanks so much, and see you guys again next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.